Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we took a one-week break. Um, If you missed that message, I encourage you to go back and watch it online. And then Nick finished up Ephesians chapter 1 two weeks ago. And so now we're entering into chapter 2 and that last verse in chapter 1, we're actually going to come back to it in the coming weeks. It's really an incredible verse. Um, It'll apply, as you'll see here in the coming weeks. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, if you got your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. In 1985, the Chicago Bears had a defense that was uh, relentless, creative, and dominant. Relentless, creative, and dominant. They would smother the teams that they played. Some would argue that the Chicago Bears, 1985, was the greatest team ever. They had Buddy Ryan. I got a picture here of Buddy Ryan. They had Buddy Ryan's Blitzing 46 defense, a defense that was anchored by middle linebacker Mike Singletary with superb assistance from tackles William, the refrigerator Perry, and Dan Hampton, outside linebackers Otis Wilson and Wilbur Marshall, and defensive end Richard Dent. In 1985, the Chicago Bears went 15-1, and even beating my Dallas Cowboys that year, holding seven opponents that year to fewer than 10 points. In the NFC Divisional Playoff game, they shut out the Giants 21 to 0. The next week, they won the NFC Championship game by beating the Rams 24 to 0. Then in the Super Bowl, they held the Patriots to a total of 7 yards rushing, helping to seal a 46 to 10 victory. Bud Carson, who was the Steelers defensive coordinator from 1972 to 1977, said that this Bears team had a tremendous tactical advantage. And teams that stayed in normal offensive formations got ripped apart. Now let me ask you some questions. Do you feel emotionally exhausted? Do you feel spiritually depleted? Do you feel a tearing at the fabric of your soul's peace? Do you feel your thoughts, emotions, relationships, lives, are like a vulnerable team on the field against the 1985 Bears? Do you feel, so to speak, that your normal formations are getting ripped apart? Those first few questions, John Mark Comer asked in his book, Live No Lies, before he says this about himself. He said, you know, on paper, everything is fine with me. He said, I live in a beautiful home in a great city, he's talking about Portland, with the best coffee in the world. I'll beg to differ. He said, I have a job as a pastor. I'm free to teach the way of Jesus, at least for now. He said, man, my kids and I, we even get to walk the dog to the park and stop along the way for ice cream. On paper, everything seems really, really nice and good and as it should be. He said, so why is it then that I feel so tired, so worn down, not just in body, but in mind? Why do I feel so battered and bruised spiritually and emotionally? Why does every day feel like a battle 
just to stay faithful, just to keep following Jesus. He said, here's an idea. Maybe because it is. Maybe, perhaps, we really are at war. And every day is a battle. Against the spiritual equivalent to the 1985 bears. The three enemies of the soul. The, as some have termed, the counter-trinity. That seeks to rip us apart on a micro level and on a macro level. Maybe there's something deeper going on than our just day in and day out routines. Something deeper going on than what we tend to fixate on in the seen world. That brings us to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And this is what Paul writes. He says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of humanity or mankind. Verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved And you've been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God's. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Now what Paul is doing is he is introducing a line of thought that really begins there at that last verse in chapter 1. But he's introducing a line of thought and reasoning that is going to carry throughout the end of chapter 3. And let me just say this. It is a brilliant piece of writing that reveals to us the great mystery of Christ, and how in and through the gospel of Jesus, Paul is going to make clear the Gentiles are heirs together with the Jews. That's the great mystery that he's going to argue for and reason, that the Gentiles in Christ are heirs together with Israel. So bonus reading this week, go read chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians and go read other places like the book of Galatians and and just start right there. And as you're reading those passages, ask yourself this, who is the church? And for those in Christ, what now defines Gentiles and what now defines Jews? Who is the church and what does God have in store for the church? 
But before we can get to that brilliant mystery, and we will, for these next couple of weeks, I just want to stop right here on these verses that we just read. Because it's crucial that you and I acknowledge and that you and I know what we were enslaved to. Before Jesus, and how, in and through Jesus, God set us free. And as we'll see later in this book, in Ephesians, knowing what we were enslaved to before Jesus, and how, in and through Jesus, God set us free, is crucial because it's also crucial that we, the church, refrain from returning to what enslaved us. Because in and through Jesus, God has set us free. Now, why do I say that? Because what enslaved us desperately wants to keep us from salvation or to disrupt our sanctification. What enslaved us desperately wants to keep humanity from salvation and to disrupt the church's sanctification. Right? Salvation is that moment in which we go from death into life, darkness into life, from non-child to child status, right? We are saved now and we are saved from the wrath to come. But sanctification is that process, that journey of being conformed to the image of Jesus, thinking like Jesus, acting and reacting like Jesus, conformed to the image of Jesus. What we were enslaved to desperately wants to keep us from salvation and to disrupt our sanctification. So for these next couple of weeks, I just want to walk through Paul's depiction of what some, again, have called this counter-trinity. The three beasts, if you will, that set themselves up against God's. And they are what enslaved us. And they are these three things. The Satan, the world, and the flesh. Now in Paul's order, he starts with the world, and he talks about this prince, the Satan, and then he talks about the flesh. But I want to start with talking about the Satan. And we're going to define what Paul means by the world and what he means by the flesh. But what we mean by counter-trinity is that these three work together, led by the evil one, to try and either keep us from salvation or to disrupt our sanctification. They together are like the 1985 bears. And if you and I are not on guard, if we're not ready, if we think we can just go about our normal routine, then they will have a tactical advantage on you and you will get ripped apart. So Paul starts off by saying, you were dead. Now again, he's beginning in this line of argument and reasoning, really that's going to focus on the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And so you, he's referring to you, Gentile readers, you non-Jews, you were dead. You were hopeless. You were helpless. You were lifeless. You were dead. And this word in the original text means just what it sounds like. Dead. You were dead. But more specifically, 
It's a word that means the loss of the spark of life that once animated that life. So think of it like this. A couple weeks ago, I talked about my precious friend, my Toyota 4Runner that we had to sell and say goodbye to and so on. Now, here's the thing. When I would get into that 4Runner, every so often I would go to start the car and it wouldn't start. And again, knowing this vehicle so well, I knew exactly what was wrong. Um, The thing was, is the battery and the wires connected to the battery would often come disconnected. And so I knew immediately when I would go to start the car, the wires became disconnected again. And this had happened from time to time, so I would hop out, I would go and I'd pop the hood up, and I would then take those two wires and I would connect them back together. And usually when I did, there would be a spark. That spark signaled to me or let me know that there was life in the battery, life in this vehicle. That it was going to get me from point A to point B, hopefully and thankfully, right? But if I put those two wires together and there was no spark, I knew the battery was dead. Thus, the vehicle was dead. And this is what we say. This is the language in which we use, right? If you go outside and your car doesn't start, you say, man, my car died. What do you mean by that? It lost the spark of life. This is what Paul is saying is that you were dead. You had lacked, lost the spark of life. Thus you were powerless, you were hopeless, you were helpless, you were lifeless. Paul is describing a dreadful and hopeless existence in which you and I once dwelt. All of us, every person outside of Jesus, we lived, we resided in death. This is who we were. Remember, he will say in Ephesians 5.8 that we once were darkness. Well, here he's saying we once were dead, so we lacked light. We also lacked life. But it's not just that we were dead. It's that we were the cause of our own death. He says you were dead in what? In your transgressions or trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, that's interesting that Paul would use Two different words to describe this. And he does it for a reason, because both paint a very clear picture. The best way I can relay these two words to you in the original text, the trespasses and sins, is by saying this. Trespass equals failure. Sins equal rebellion. In other words, because of our failure... To uphold the law. No matter how many works we try to do. No matter how many sacrifices we try to offer. And the author of Hebrews would make this very, very clear. We could sacrifice every day, every day, over and over and over and over again. It would still never be enough. It would still never be enough. A scripture is very clear. All of us have fallen short. All of us have failed to uphold the law. And because of our rebellion against the law. Remember, Paul would say this in Colossians and Romans, that we were enemies to God. We were hostile to God. We were opposed to God outside of Christ. We were dead. So because of our failure to uphold the law and because of our rebellion against the law, we were dead found lifeless and hopeless. 
We failed to live up to the law. We rebelled against the law. We were, in other words, failures and rebels. This is what defined us. This is what defines those outside of Christ today. We ourselves got ourselves into this mess. It's our fault. This is who we were. Thus, by nature, he argues, we deserved wrath, death, judgment. Later in this chapter, in chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear to his non-Jewish readers that before Jesus, by birth, by nature, we were far away from God. We were separated from God. We were excluded from the family of God and all the blessings that come with that. We were foreigners. We were without hope. We were without God. But for Paul, it's not just Gentiles. This dreadful depiction is also true of Jews, those circumcised in the flesh. He turns from, you were dead, to now, we also were dead. We too, now referring to me and my people, the Jews. We were like the rest of humanity, by nature, deserving of wrath. Why? Because they too were failures and rebels. The Old Testament makes that very, very clear. See, the Old Testament, generally speaking, is an indictment on all humanity. That we failed to uphold the law and we rebelled against the law. But specifically, it's an indictment on the Israelites who were set apart, who were meant to be a group of people who were of the faith of Abraham. But what happened? They failed to live up to the law and they rebelled against the law to the point that they were actually worse than the nations they drove out. It's an indictment on humanity. It's an indictment on the Israelites that all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, are failures and rebels and by nature deserving wrath and judgment. Transgressions and sins. Failure to live up to the law. Rebellion against the law. As one commentator said, they combine to stress the human predicament across nations, across generations. These transgressions and sins bring about the condition of death. They characterize the existence of those who are spiritually dead. Even as those like Nicodemus and Paul would realize that even those who were the Jewish leaders trying so hard to live up to the law, Paul finally realized they were only failing. They were only failing. But what does that failure and rebellion look like played out in reality? Paul expounds on this. And he describes our failure in rebellion by saying, we walked, we followed, we aligned our lives, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength under the counter trinity. We followed the world, we followed the prince of the air, the Satan, the evil one, and we followed the cravings and the desires of the flesh. We aligned our lives under the counter-trinity rather than the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We traded a truth, the truth, for a lie. We traded this kingdom over his kingdom. We traded ourself over him. 
It's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And you and I were right there with them, so as through one man, all of us became dead. Now, next week, again, we're going to look at the world and what exactly that world means, that word means, and the following week, the flesh. But today, I just want to focus on the Satan, the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, Paul says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who exactly is this prince? Who exactly is this ruler, this authority? Is he the guy in the red outfit and the pitchfork? Not quite. Matter of fact, that's a caricature. Paul uses this word prince. It's a political word in his day. It's used for the highest ranking Roman official in a city or region. In other words, this creature that Paul is talking about, who leads the spiritual forces of darkness that he would later talk about in Ephesians 6, this creature is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And Scripture is actually pretty clear about who the Satan is. And the reason I say the Satan, because that's a title, not a name. But let's just look at some of the facts. This name Satan means adversary or one who opposes. Another one of his titles, the devil, means slanderer or accuser. Again, we're never actually told his personal real name. And some of you say, well, I thought it was Lucifer. Perhaps, but we'll look at that in just a moment. But he is, so to speak, the leader of the failure. The leader of the rebellion. He is the prince the accuser, the evil one. As Jesus would say, he's the father of lies who utilizes his native language and preys on the cravings of our flesh and he takes advantage of the world arena so as to what? To steal, to kill, and destroy on a micro level and on a macro level. As one person said, if Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, then the devil's anthem is on earth as it is in heaven hell. His end goal is death, to spread it, to promote it across the board. John Mark Comer in his book says, for Jesus, the devil is the archetype of a villain who is hell-bent, pun intended, on destruction. He just wants to watch the world burn. His motto is, tear it all down. Wherever he finds life, he tries to stomp it out. Beauty, deface it. Love, corrupt it. Unity, fragment it into a million pieces. Human flourishing, push it to anarchy or tyranny. Either will do. His anti-life, pro-death, pro-chaos agenda is an insatiable fire. The devil, the Satan, the prince of the ruler of the air is in rebellion against all that is God's. His goal, along with the other spiritual beings under his sway, is to oppose you. To oppose your salvation and to oppose your sanctification. In other words, you and I are at war. And every day is a battle against an enemy that is intentional and powerful, creative and seductive. You cannot run from this fight. You were born into a world at war. And it is relentless because our enemy, 
again, is relentless. As Peter said, man, he's like a lion just prowling around, just looking for someone to devour. Lions like to hunt at night, in the shadows, in the dark, unnoticed, unseen. This is our reality. We are facing an enemy who opposes God, who opposes us, our salvation, our sanctification, and who will do anything and everything to bring death into our lives. But what's the story? How do we get here? Well, there's a lot we know, and there's a lot we don't know. According to places like Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Revelation 12, due to pride, the Satan fell from his position in heaven and is now completely again opposed to God, doing all, his, all in his power to thwart God's purposes. Listen to what he were told in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Now stop right there. This is where we get Lucifer from. Because the Hebrew word there literally means shining one. But it's translated into Latin as Lucifer, which means light bearer. And thus many people think, oh, well, maybe that's his special name, Lucifer. We don't really know. But either way, we know that he was a shining light. O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, verse 13. You said, this is important, you said in your heart. Now notice the first person. I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So it's Satan's pride that leads to his fall, that leads to his rebellion. He wanted to exalt himself above and before God. Because of his sin, God permanently removed him from his exalted position and role, even though he still masquerades as an angel of light. And we learn in Scripture that Satan became the ruler of this world. Again, we'll talk about what that means. And the prince of the power of the air. So as one person said, even though he was cast from his position, lost his position, he still seeks to elevate his throne above God's. He counterfeits all that God does, hoping to gain the worship of the world and encourage opposition to God's kingdom. But it's important to know that he's not God. He's not on the level with God. He's a created being. He's not all-present. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. There are many things hidden to him, unlike God. He is limited in knowledge and presence. And Satan's destiny is sealed, determined. And eternity, as we see in Revelation 20, in the lake of fire. However, even though his fate is determined, in the meantime, he's still crafty. He's still powerful, intelligent, knowledgeable, and experienced. To where his schemes can still devour you and rip you apart. If you're not ready, if you're not on guard, if you're not standing firm. Think of it like this. I had a professor at UCO who was leading my deviant religious class. This is part of my undergrad, as deviant religions. 
And he was leading this class, and he was talking about his Ph.D. work. And he said a part of his Ph.D. work is that he had to basically learn how to become a fortune teller as part of his secular religious studies. He said they taught him the scheme. They taught him how to manipulate the human mind by asking certain trigger questions in order to make it appear as though he had the power over their thoughts. And he said he became really, really good at it. It, was, it became like a side job for him during his PhD work. That's a barely trained college student manipulating and leading people astray through deception. Imagine what the prince of darkness can do. Satan can not only deduce what you're thinking, he can easily evaluate your weaknesses and tendencies to know how to trap you by offering you the kind of thoughts and ideas that will get you to bite into his fruit. Now let me explain how this works. And it starts here by just giving you an idea of thoughts. Because you start to think about, or you see how easy it is to start thinking about what I want you to think about. So let me give you an example. If I said red tomatoes and I showed you a picture of red tomatoes, you're now thinking about red tomatoes. Maybe, man, I had a terrible crop this year. Man, I really want some ketchup for lunch now, right? Or, man, those red tomatoes look terrible, or they look really, really good, right? You're now thinking about red tomatoes. Let's do another one. What if I said elephants on skates? And you're now immediately thinking about an elephant on skates. And you're probably wondering, what's the backstory there? How in the world does an elephant get on skates? And what does that look like to see an elephant on skate riding down the sidewalk or something like that? It's really easy to present to you a thought, an idea, in which you immediately begin to think about them. That's not hard. And Satan knows how to do that, to give you an idea, a thought. And he's really skilled at it, and it's part of his scheme. But his scheme is much deeper and deadlier than just giving you a thought. Let me give you this example. Some of you might have seen the movie Inception. It's a Christopher Nolan movie. Some of you hate his movies because they cause you to think really, really deep. Um, I love his movies. I'm not endorsing all of his movies, but I love his movies because they make you really, really think. And one of those movies is Inception. And long story short, and as easy as I can put it, the premise of this movie is that the main characters can pull private information from people, like a password to like a bank account or to an account online or something. They can extract information, private information from people without that person knowing it by accessing people's dreams. So in other words, in the movie, they can somehow jump into your dreams, manipulate your thoughts and ideas, and extract information from you. This is the premise of the movie. But in the movie, the main characters who are skilled at this are hired not to pull information from someone, but to implant an idea into someone. So as to get that person to act on the idea. This is what they call inception. Planting an idea in someone else so that they believe it to be true. Planting it so deep in them that they believe it to be true. That it's an idea that came from them and not from an outside source. Thus getting them to then act on their belief or their truth. 
And the reason I bring that up is because that is what Satan does. He knows how to deceive you. He knows how to manipulate you. He knows how to plant something so deep in your heart and mind, a misbelief that you believe is truth, that it corresponds to reality, and that it came not from an outside evil source, but it actually came from within you. Thus, you believe it to be good and right and true, and thus you act on it. But again, it comes from the father of lies who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy you, and so it leads to destruction and death in the end, even though at first it seems like it's right. And you and I are going to see how this plays out on a micro level with our flesh and on a macro level with the world, but man, it is powerful, and it's deadly. I know what you're thinking, man. Come on, that, that's just a movie. That's not actually how Satan works. Come on, that's, that's Inception. That's a 21st century movie. Whatever. Listen to John 13, too. While supper was taking place, the devil had already put the idea of betraying Jesus into the mind of Judas. This is his scheme. Now, that's a little detail that John just throws in there. The other gospel writers phrase it a little differently. But John uses this word, put the idea. It's an idiom, literally to throw into the heart of somebody. To cause someone to think in a particular manner, often as a means of inducing some kind of behavior. And that word mind is where we get cardio, right? Talking about our heart. You hear cardiac arrest. It's deep within him. You might call it inception. He places an idea so deep in you, a misbelief that you believe is true and that it came from yourself so as to lead you to act on it. And you see how deadly and destructive it is. But this is who he is. He is the father of lies. Again, as Jesus said, he speaks his native language. He's powerful in what he does. He's powerful in his schemes. He knows how to manipulate you and to lure you and to alter and twist and change the truth so as to destroy you. And before Jesus, outside of Jesus, we were his children. We belonged to him. Those outside of Jesus now belong to him. This is what was so amazing about John chapter 8 when Jesus is looking the religious leaders in the eye saying, you actually belong to your father, the devil, the Satan, the prince, the ruler of the air, the father of lies. You and I once belonged to the one who seeks to bury lies so deep that we act on them, that we react on them, that we believe they are truth, when in reality they're lies, they're misbeliefs that lead to death and destruction. We were enslaved to the evil one. Thus, we were found hopeless and helpless and lifeless, found dead just following him in his failure and in his rebellion. But God. Two of the greatest words in Scripture. But God. And we'll look more at what Paul gets at here in this latter half, this section later. But he did not leave us doomed to our predicament. He came to set the captives free. 
that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. That we would go from cursed children belonging to the father of lies to blessed children belonging to the father of truth. This is why John would say Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. We read elsewhere that he has come to bind the strong man, to set humanity free. As one author said, he did this first through his defeat of the devil in the desert, but then through his teaching and his ministry and his exorcisms, and finally through his death and resurrection and exaltation, in which, as Paul would say, he disarmed the powers and the authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So now in Christ, it's the prodigal son story. We once were dead, but now we are alive. We once belonged to him, but now we have been set free. So how then, in the meantime, do we refrain from returning to following the prince of the air? How do we remain on guard against his schemes? Well, first off, we better get ready. We better wake up and we better get ready. Growing up, I would come here to Enid, Mother's Day weekend, for a soccer tournament. Almost every year, we'd play in this tournament. And I remember when I was about eight, nine, ten years old, we showed up to the field, me, my team, and the team we were playing against was from Colorado, and they were co-ed. And in that day and age, co-ed was very uncommon. We'd never played against a co-ed team. And so a lot of the guys on the team all of a sudden began to have this sense of arrogance and a sense of not taking our opponent seriously. The game got going, and we got embarrassed. They ripped us apart. To show you just how bad it was, our goalkeeper, who was doing a lot of the yapping before the game, literally had a ball go straight through his legs and into the net. The goalkeeper. They destroyed us. It was embarrassing. But listen, some of us, we are taking the field every day with consciously or subconsciously, with a sense of arrogance and not taking our opponent seriously. It's like we're looking the enemy in the eye and saying, man, I got this. He's destroying us. He's ripping some of us apart. On a micro level, yes, and on a macro level. You and I had better wake up and we had better get ready. And we must not run, we must not hide, we must stand firm, ready for the fight. I mean, imagine for a moment, it's 4th of July weekend, and so we often think of wars, going back to the War of Independence, but even the wars since then. Imagine for a moment World War II, June 6, 1944, D-Day, beaches of Normandy, and you are on a boat, and this is your image. And you are entering, entering enemy territory. And you're already hearing gunfire and shots and so on and screams and yelling and commands and it's just chaotic already. And you are in charge of a group of young men. And you turn to look into their eyes. And you see written across their face fear, 
inexperience, a sense of uncertainty? What do you tell them? I imagine from your gut, from your very soul, somewhere deep within, you would find the words to say, get ready. Be strong. Be courageous. Be brave. Don't turn. Don't hide. But fight. Fight the good fight. Fight for freedom. Fight for love and joy and peace. Fight for the future. The reason I think about that is because I imagine that almost to be kind of like a similar case with Paul at the end of Ephesians. Not talking about a geopolitical battle. Not talking about a battle between countries or neighbors, but a battle unlike any other. One which is unfolding every day, every hour, every minute. One in which souls are at stake. One in which freedom, love, joy, peace, and a future is at stake for so many. And Paul is looking at his readers with a sense of fear and an experience, a sense of uncertainty. And from deep in his gut, he says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Get dressed, get ready for battle so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all those flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's a war going on. A battle every day. And what Paul is trying to make clear for us is that we don't belong to the enemy anymore. We were following him. We were believing and living his lies but not anymore. Now you and I, we know the truth, and the truth has set us free. So what do you do? Get ready. Don't run, don't hide, but as Paul says, stand. Not in your strength, not in your might, not in your words, but stand in his strength, stand in his might, Stand in his word. Resist the evil one. He'll flee from you. Don't go back living like the dead men and women that you were. Instead, live like the free men and women that you are. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite John and them up. 
And as some of us, we read through this passage. If we're being honest, the evil one has attacked us in many different ways, and we've been caught off guard. And we've bought into his same old lies, misbeliefs, and we've gone back to allowing those to dictate our actions or reactions. But Paul is reminding us and that's who we were. But God, rich in mercy and by his grace and love, he has made us alive together with Christ. We no longer are under his rule. We no longer belong to the father of lies. We belong to the father of truth. And so for some of us, it's just coming in before the Lord in this time, and it's just confessing, Lord, forgive me for returning back. And Lord, protect me. Deliver me from temptation. Make me ready. Help me to stand strong. And for some of us, we look at what's going on in the world, we look at what's going on in our lives, we have to acknowledge and know and realize there is an evil force seeking to bring death on a micro and macro level. Quit taking the opponent without seriousness. And the way we fight this battle is to stand strong in God's words, abiding in Him, and praying always. So as you look at that family member, as you think about that person, as you think about that family situation, that community situation, this cultural situation, this world situation. For some of us, we got to start praying differently. we got to start praying differently. But here in a moment, we're going to stand, and I'm going to invite you, if you need to come down here to pray, if you need to come talk to myself or Nick or somebody about salvation or just baptism or just joining the church or just something, Man, we're going to be down here. We're going to be down here. Father, we come to you right now in this place. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ, that you have set us free, that we are no longer enslaved to the evil one, to the flesh, to the world. but we are now under your rule and your authority and your lordship. And in Christ, you've set us free. Father, we had failed. We had rebelled. But because of the work of Jesus and in Jesus, Lord, you change our lives. You take us from death into life, from darkness into light, from a non-child cursed status to a child blessed status because of Christ because of who we are in Christ we thank you for that 
But Lord, there is still a, a world at war. Lives are at stake. So many people are buying into the lies and living the lies. Even some of those in the church were turning back to that which once enslaved them. Lord, bring us to the truth today. Set the captives free. And may we pray differently. May we be ready, on guard, every day, standing firm in the faith, ready for a battle, ready for the war, dressed in your armor, praying constantly. And protect each one of us from the evil one and his schemes and deliver us from temptation. In Christ's name I pray. I'm going to ask that you stand with us right now. During this time of invitation, you come.